Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. Today on the podcast, we're continuing this conversation about power and the way in which power dynamics intersect with our spirituality, faith, and faith communities. The reason I think this matters is that so many of the rules that shape the way we often engage in conversations about our faith are actually governed by problematic power dynamics. And so if we're going to have honest and meaningful conversations, we have to be able to talk about the way in which power functions. We can't avoid these power dynamics. They're always present, but it's how we recognize them and reflect on them and navigate our way through them, hopefully in healthy ways. And for me, this is not simply an issue of relational or social dynamics. It's theological. It's about the way we see ourselves and each other. It's about who has a voice and about what it means to find some open space. And all of these perspectives stem from the things that we believe about the world and God and spirituality and the values and ethics that shape our everyday lives. On today's episode, I'm talking with a friend of mine, Shane Meyer-Holt. Shane is one of the leaders of a church community in Melbourne, and we've talked together for many years about how power, faith, spirituality, and community intersect. I, I guess where you run into trouble as people of faith is that um, efficiency and pragmatism isn't really the centre of where our faith is. Authenticity and love are. And I think that the guruism system is far better at getting things done uh, than it is processing and handling people and knowing people well. My name is Michael Frost and this is episode three of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Today's episode is titled Gurus and the Problem with Charisma. A few months ago, I was watching a documentary on Netflix called Wild Wild Country. You might have seen it, but if you haven't, it's a series about a particular Indian guru, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, or Osho as he's sometimes called, who gathered a large following, uh, especially of Western devotees in the 1970s and 1980s. Still has a a kind of following. Uh, I saw his book in the bookstore the other day, actually. Uh, And this documentary tracks the way in which he picked up and moved this whole kind of commune from India to a rural area in the US. And the story of these thousands of people who followed this particular guru who all moved with uh, the Bhagwan to this particular area, formed this town. Uh, These people who were captivated and even, in their words, liberated by his teachings and spiritual practices. But what you also see as the documentary continues is about how power functions in this kind of scenario how this cultivating of a massive imbalance between an authoritative and all-knowing wise leader and the followers can end up in a very dark and unhealthy place. And, you know, this is a particularly wild story, but it does highlight the challenges of the guru paradigm, the challenges that emerge when an individual or maybe a small group of people hold the knowledge uh, or appear to hold the knowledge and, and do hold the power in a community and, and kind of what unfolds when it can go relatively unchallenged. Alongside this guru idea, uh, the notion of guruism, I guess we could call it, is, is also the idea of the charismatic leader. In a theological sense, the first century Christians used this Greek word charisma to talk about the graces or the gifts that certain individuals are given by God. But our modern usage often stems more from sociologist Max Weber, who kind of end, end of 19th, early 20th century, was talking about this idea of a charismatic leader who appears to possess these extraordinary kind of leadership qualities, insight, maybe the ability to inspire, uh, and the way that people are drawn to following these kinds of leaders, and often these kind of charismatic leaders who are the 
uh, initiators of new movements or of new uh, communities. Now, in one sense, this does sound kind of good. There's, n- there's nothing inherently wrong with being a charismatic person. Uh, I know many wonderful charismatic people, but perhaps the problem is more what we do with that charisma. If you think about many of the dangerous political leaders who've created conflict and violence, many of them were charismatic leaders. Many televangelists who implore people to send them even more money as they live in their mansions are often really charismatic people, but who turn out to be manipulating others and ripping them off. And often, again, the challenge in operation here is is one of power, that sometimes a person with the knowledge, the insight, the warmth, the authority, the strength of personality is also the one with the power. And if they use their position of power to further entrench those power dynamics rather than to undo them, they can end up using their force of personality and expertise to create ways of being in community that can actually be quite dysfunctional, we might even say harmful to certain groups of people. Of course, the obvious conclusion, I guess you could say it's probably worth pointing this out, might simply be the reason I'm doing this episode is because I have a problem with gurus and charisma, uh, largely because I just want to be charismatic, but I'm not not very good at it, and so I'm just bitter about all of those charismatic people out there. Uh, so to get around this, I thought what I'd do is I'd talk about it with a friend of mine who lives in Melbourne, Australia. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Shane Meyerholt is one of the leaders of a church community there and someone who I've known for a long time. We've had lots of conversations over the years about the guru system, about leadership, about power dynamics and the way they intersect with theology and spirituality. And to be honest, he's probably much more charismatic than me, and so I thought he would be much less likely to be accused of being uh, bitter. Um, Before I play the interview, I want to note that after we recorded it, we were just talking about how strange it is to discuss the guru mentality in this way, and especially for a recording to beam around the world, as if we're some kind of expert on it. Because as soon as you start to say, well, let me tell you how we've figured all of this out, we've undone the guru system, and if you do things like us, then you'll be much better off too, well, then you're just kind of folding back into the guru system itself. So I think we recognized it's a slightly strange conversation to have, but I feel like it's so important that we needed to do it anyway. So uh, here's my interview with Shane. Okay, so Shane, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, My absolute pleasure, Michael. I'm going to start with a question which is really about your own journey and your own personal experience, which is to say, could you tell me a little bit about your own religious background, your history, your history of faith and Christianity and where that began and how that's kind of tracked from there? Uh, For sure. I grew up in the church. I was from a pretty churchy family, not like a, you know, super involved doing things churchy family, just a kind of going along churchy family. So, yeah, I guess I grew up with, pretty wonderful parents, all in all. Um, and I, from pretty early age, I had a, I guess just a really strong sense of God and a pretty strong sense that God loved me, which was quite a nice thing to grow up with, I think. Um, that, of course, um, became a lot more difficult when later in life I learned what God would be prepared to do to me if I left him. But, you know, that's probably for another time. Um, I went to various churches. Our family kind of moved towns a little bit when I was younger, and we just kind of changed, (laughs) particularly loyal, we just changed kinds of churches uh, every time we moved. So I was a a bit of a brethren and a bit of a Baptist and a bit of a Pentecostal um, later in life. For those of you who are churchy people, you might understand that. And for those of you who aren't, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's no great loss. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we moved around churches a bit. I think I probably spent most of my time, from when I was 15 onwards, I spent my time in um, Pentecostal contexts, 
yeah, for the most part. Okay, so from what I know of you, because we are good friends, obviously, let's not yeah. let's not hide that fact from the people. Um, <laughs> I'm going to kind of pretend that I'm a special guest and not <laughs> the only person that you could get. Can I just say that how disappointed I am that I'm on your podcast, that you're so early into this and are already scraping the barrel of, um, <laughs> of guests. Um, I'm disappointed to hear myself, but, you know, I'm sure you're not. No, I'm very, I'm obviously very excited. You're a great friend of the program. Is that what we no, say? I am. Yeah. That's correct. Great friend of the program. <laughs> yeah. I think that's how one this of, thing works. One of, one of one friends of the, that's pro- exactly of the program. Right. That's exactly yes. right. Yes. Um, so from what I know of you now, uh, mm. you, you, I don't think you would describe your current reality uh, of church and Christianity in exactly the same way as that which you grew up with. No. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that process of where you get from being a, maybe a young Pentecostal? To being who you are now, which is the uh, one of the leaders of the faith community, but one which probably wouldn't be um, described in those same terms. Yeah, for sure. I think. I mean, I I always loved church. Um, As a person who got the crap kicked out of the most of high school, um, church was a very safe place for me because you know kicking the crap out of people was discouraged there. Um, So yeah, I I left school, um, didn't really know what to do with myself. Was already doing some youth leadership stuff, so. An internship seemed like a good idea. So I left school and then did an internship with a little bit of uh, rather flimsy study attached to it and then became eventually became a youth pastor. So I spent like, quite a lot of time um, from my teens and early 20s in, in the church, working for a church in a um, Pentecostal context. And look, for the most part, there was lots of really awesome bits about that. Um, but somewhere during that time, my life went through a pretty serious unraveling process um as a person who is by all measures kind of living the dream of my faith community a lot of stuff didn't sit that well with me and a lot of the time i felt like a bit of an outsider i was um i'm quite a cynical human at times um i had a lot of questions i didn't feel particularly natural in the role um for a lot of it and when various parts of my life began to unravel um all at the same time as they often do the faith that I'd grown up with just didn't really, um, you know, just provide me with uh, any sense of authenticity um, or the, the kind of answers to the questions that I had. So um, this happened at the same time as I was working with um, a lot of young people from outside my nice white middle-class background. Um, and that was a huge challenge um, as I kind of came to terms with the way that I'd framed the good news of Jesus uh, wasn't particularly helpful for um, the world outside of my life. And in, in lots of ways, it was quite destructive for them. Um, and at the same time, I it was kind of on the success train of, um, you know, doing the stuff that good Pentecostal Christians are supposed to be doing and um, achieving those goals, but not really resonating or relating to the people who are supposed to be admiring. Um, I... I found a lot of the leaders in those movements to be quite unhealthy humans, um, pretty obsessed with power. Uh, they just weren't really people that I wanted to grow in with. And so um, as I thought and read and studied and did a bunch of that stuff more, I began to feel, I guess, isolated from the world around me, not only within my church context, but also because I spent so much time and energy um, 
you know, doing church stuff, I felt quite disconnected from the world outside. And I knew what we're supposed to think about the world outside the church and what they were like. Um, but it just didn't really ring true for me. And so eventually uh, I just packed up and left. I felt like my time was done with that job. I wanted to try something new. Um, I had to just to process the stuff that was going on in my life. I had to find a space where I could be a lot more authentic and honest about what was going on inside me. Um, and so I packed up and became, you know, as most people with options do, became a barista for a whole bunch of years, um, which was great. Just really a, a really good space for me to go to a place where, yeah, I could just be a lot more myself and, um, yeah, I could really dig away at some stuff that was kind of um, getting at me, yeah. One of the things we've talked about a lot over the years is the way in which power does function within church communities, especially perhaps the kinds of church communities that we grew up in uh, mm. or that we were familiar with as young younger adults. Um, and... And the temptation as well, that this is not just a power thing out there that those people have a problem mm. with, mm. but that really the whole system serves to cultivate that kind of way of being a leader, uh, yeah. which is that you become someone with some kind of power. And there's a lot of there's a lot of strong, forceful personalities. There's a lot of charismatic individuals who function well, um, successfully, we might say, mm. from a certain set of parameters within those kinds of contexts, with their force of personality. Um, can you describe a little bit, if we're thinking about the idea of kind of a guru or a charismatic leader or someone who kind of becomes the person with the, who's the go-to person with the authority and with the answers, what have been your experiences of the way that that can operate within a church kind of context? For me, a couple of good questions to ask in church communities is, where is the centre and who gets to tell the story? I think the way that guruism manifests in church is when one person or a couple or a small team or um, however it functions in that particular community takes center stage in the community and becomes the kind of defining authority about what the narrative is and what the script is and what's okay and what's not okay in a way that doesn't allow for pushback or critique or questioning. Um, a lot of my church life was spent as an environments where um, the most important place in the church was the stage. Um, it's where the important people were. It's where the centre and focus of the community was. And as a person who'd spent quite a lot of my life on stage, um, seeing what it did to me and what it did to other people really sat unco uncomfortably with with me and and with the faith that we had to represent um and how would you describe the, that that when you talk about what it did to you what, um, what did it do to you <laughs> what did it do to me uh, i think i think the pressure to be um to, to have the answers to be a role model um to to kind of carry the story of what success looks like as a christian of what um yeah, the, the kind of ideal idealism that you feel under some pressure to, to represent um, and the sense in which you are kind of the, the final authority on, um, on you know, the, the, the giver of answers. Um, I, I found that I became a less vulnerable person. Um, I feel that I became a less transparent person. I feel that 
Um, in some ways, the story we were supposed to be telling um, spoke more loudly than the, than the experience I was actually having. Um, and in that, it drove me to work harder, to listen less, to empathize less, um, as if our kind of fidelity to uh, being a successful Christian and making sure that we portrayed an image where if you serve God, everything will work out okay, um, actually trumped the story of the real lives that, of the people I was working with and the people I was serving and also the narrative I got to tell about my own life as well. Um, the, the kind of pointy triangle system um, where everyone's kind of on, in, a, in a race to the top um, and the sense of competition uh, that exists among that place that that for me just as I learned more about the kingdom of God and the upside down kingdom that seemed just more and more foreign to um, what Jesus was teaching about and from my from the from the inside having spent a lot of time in those contexts it it didn't make me healthier and it certainly didn't seem to make the people I was working with healthier either um, it just felt like the center of the church was in the wrong place do you think that's um, something that happens particularly within church communities or do you see that as being a kind of way of leading or of being that perhaps is representative of something that's wider in society and other spheres of, of leadership or responsibility at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, it, it definitely isn't exclusive to churches. Uh and in fact, a lot of the, the kind of CEO model churches that we um, have represented around the place are modeled on a particular kind of um, large shoulder padded 1980s CEO model uh, that operated in business spheres. Um, it feels to me like a very masculine, um, in the worst sense of the word, um, expression of leadership. And it's definitely not, it's definitely not exclusive to churches um, having worked you know, having friends who, you know, work in business, my dad works in corporations. Um, yeah, that, that, that system is the, the issue with the guruism system is that it's incredibly effective at achieving particular goals. Um, it's pragmatic, it's efficient, it gets things done. Um, the, I, I guess where you run into trouble as people of faith is that, um, Efficiency and pragmatism isn't really the centre of where our faith is. Authenticity and love are. And I think that the guruism system is far better at getting things done uh, than it is processing and handling people and knowing people well. Right. So what would you say then um, when you talk about how this doesn't necessarily help people navigate their lives particularly well, even if it's quite efficient at generating a well-functioning organisation, um, what kind of impact does that have then on people's lives? If if, so, if the guruism is the way in which things function, uh, what are the challenges that then arise, not just for potentially you as the person who is the one who's supposed to have all the answers, but how does mm. that then uh, impact on the people in those communities who are experiencing that kind of um, way of leading or way of being? Yeah, look, I think uh, one, of, one of the, I think there's kind of individual and corporate impacts. Um, vulnerable people, I guess, uh, is where um, 
a lot of my attention in this sphere has been um, focused on is, is what is it like to um, to have a life that falls outside the script of the community that you're in? Uh, if you are constantly told a particular kind of story about the way life is supposed to work out, if you do the right things, um, if there's pressure to achieve in particular ways, if particular kinds of people are valued and other people are less valued, um, and you fall outside of the script um, that's given to you, how how do you process that if you feel like you don't have a voice to push back? Um, we... You know, we all we all have friends who have um, who have felt isolated and alone um, within these large systems. Who have felt like their experience has been diminished. Um, you know, a good example of this would be you know someone you know who, who someone who's struggling financially in a system where you're told that if you tithe. Um, then you know, then then you'll be rich just like me. You know the kind of Christian pyramid scheme. Um, if you fall at the bottom of that pyramid and you're struggling to make ends meet, and no one is acknowledging that some of the reasons why you're struggling financially are actually to do with um, your life circumstances and the lack of privilege that you have, as opposed to theirs. Then if you don't have a a voice to um, ask questions of that story and to question that story and to kind of poke and prod with it or to bring your story alongside it, then you suddenly feel like either you're doing something wrong or that you have to suppress that story to remain part of the community. And, yeah, this this kind of plays out in lots of different ways for different people, people who have, um, who have, who have lost loved ones and been told, you know, um, that that God had a purpose in it when they they don't they don't actually feel that way. People who feel like they um, can't contribute in ways that uh, uh, are, are honoured, that are um, you know are success stories, that they feel marginalised in communities yet don't really have a place um, to acknowledge that. So I think on the kind of individual level, where th- that kind of guruism runs into trouble is for people for people whose life circumstances make them feel devalued. But from a kind of communal level, I think one of the great losses is that a single story becomes the dominant narrative. Um, and when that happens, when one voice becomes incredibly loud, you miss out on the incredible gifts that the rest of the voices of a community have to bring. There's immense wisdom and knowledge um, and insight and experience lying dormant in communities but the reality is in lots of community, communities we never get to hear though that that wisdom and that inside it's interesting to think about you know you mentioned jesus earlier mm, that uh, guy yeah that guy our lord yeah. and savior jesus christ uh <laughs> what's it be his name under his eye may the lord open uh and you you mentioned this phrase of the upside down kingdom uh, just very briefly mm. you kind of ran through that so let's come back to this Jesus idea because in many respects you could look at the Jesus story and say, but this is a this is a guru essentially. This is a guy who is the uh, the origin of a religious movement where everybody follows him. Uh, mm. He walked around saying wise things, and everybody traipsed around after him and followed him into the wilderness and followed him back into Indeed. the city and followed him on yep. you know as he as he wandered uh, from town to town. Uh, yep. He gathered these disciples who were loyal to him and waited on his every word. Uh, is, yeah. is Jesus not some kind of 
um, authoritative guru of the kind that we're currently critiquing? Um, what do you think? How does the Jesus story fit into this particular conversation for you? Yeah, in, in a bunch of ways. Um, one being, and probably the first thing we should probably address is that um, pastors aren't Jesus. Um, oh. Now, I know there's a lot of confusion there because some of them are just, some of us are just so Christ like, it's hard to believe. Um, yeah, but that, that, that knowing, knowing <laughs> where you fit in the body of Christ is probably pretty important um, and that the Jesus bit isn't you. Um, secondly, we, that we live in an incredibly different time and place than Jesus did. And I think that cultural context really matters. Um, and then thirdly, that Jesus actually in many ways operated as an anti-guru. Um, there are a whole lot of parts of the story that just don't really line up with gathering a following. Um, he oftentimes deliberately confused people. Um, people tried to crown him as king and he wouldn't let them. Uh, he was offered the world <laughs> in the wilderness um, and he turned it down. Um, people let, left him en masse. Um, until it was just, you know, a, a few people hanging out with him when he didn't make them happy, and he let them walk away. Um, in lots of ways, I think those are really unguru things. I think Jesus had a lot of wisdom to give and a lot of wisdom to share, um, and he definitely wanted people to follow the way of the kingdom. But I, my, my sense is that he was actually pointing beyond just himself um, and that he wouldn't compromise for, um, you know, numbers on a chart. And that kind of is a thing that pops up again and again throughout the gospel of Jesus losing people and letting people go, and what he having what he had to offer um, that kind of claim to power. Um, he he constantly re, he constantly refused. You know, his disciples asking who would get to rule alongside him, and him pushing very strongly back, saying that's not the point. If you think this is about gaining power. You've you've missed it all together. Um, the cross is what you're going to end up with if you keep walking this way. Jesus needed to read a few church growth books or something. He did. He was yeah yeah. He was te- he was terrible. Yeah. He he never he never would have grown a successful community. He didn't even build any buildings. What? What a what? I know. He threatened to tear a couple down, but yeah, he got that completely wrong. Yeah. Everyone knows you keep building buildings and you put in air conditioning. Oh, yeah, no, it's very important. Come on, uh, Jesus. He'll get it eventually. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay, maybe not. I mean, I, th- I think the profound vulnerability of Jesus strikes me there too, in that he he let people in to his deepest struggles and fears and frailties. And for a person who was, you know, supposed to be Messiah, that's just very anti-Messiah activity to depend on people to ask people to sit and pray with you and watch you because you weren't you didn't know whether you were willing to face what was to come and to be profoundly let down by people in that place and let them know about it um yeah i just don't think jesus had a huge uh, focus on image management uh you mentioned the phrase upside down kingdom could you just explain that briefly what you what you mean by that how long you got? <laughs> um, briefly, um, well, I mean, I think kingdom is a really loaded word. Um, yeah, we, we in our community try, try and use the word kingdom, uh, which drops the G and is more about uh, the, the family of God. Oh, I see what you did there. 
Tennessee, yeah. I mean, we've stolen that, of course, off um, Trip Fuller, but, you know, don't, don't give him any credit. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a better way of thinking about it, that, you know, the story of the disciples, you know, asking Jesus, you know, who will get to sit on his right and his left is a classic example of this, of they had this idea that, you know, if Jesus took power, and they were probably thinking in very concrete, you know, royal military terms, if Jesus took power um, and brought the kingdom of God to earth and then put everyone else in their place and um, and established this kind of, you know, political rule, then they would have, you know, something to gain off that because they were the dudes who followed Jesus around. Um, Jesus pushed back really strongly on that and and told them quite clearly that that's not what this is about, that this is actually about serving, that who, that, you know, who wanted to be first should make themselves last. Um, that really this is about the equality of humanity, not about grasp for power. And when we understand God as the self-giving one, the generous one, the one who invites others into a, a community of equality that changes how we think, of, well, it changes how we th- should think about the power structures within our churches. Um, you know, Paul picks up on this in, you know, in, in first Corinthians when he's talking about, about the body and about the way the different parts should be honored, about the way the different people in the church should be treated. And, you know, he at length kind of goes on about, you know, it's the unsightly bits. It's the it's the bits that we um, that seem unpresentable that should receive the most honor and the most love. It's the elbows and the nostrils and the assholes that should you know receive the most dignity and the most honor. And you know, where the church has got that right is I think we've honored a lot of assholes in our time, but I think we might have picked the wrong ones. Um, that that this is actually about giving dignity and voice and value to those who have been shut out of systems. Um, and, and, and that's what Jesus modeled with the kingdom of God is he constantly went to the margins, went to the voiceless, went to those who were shut out of systems and who were suffering because of that. You know, women and um, people with illnesses that kept them out of the temple and foreigners, Jesus showed immense amounts of compassion and brought their stories into the center. Uh, and I think that's what the kingdom of God looks like when those who have been humiliated and dishonoured are bought um, to have a seat at the table. I think that's a really helpful conversation, and I know that's just dipping our toes in the water, really. But the the word kingdom itself, because it, in many respects, it's used a lot within Christianity, um, mm. and lots of people mm. mean lots of different things surprise, when they say surprise. it. Um, yeah. But it's also a very old word now in in our current 21st century democratic societies, mm. at least while they still remain democratic. Um, you know, we'll see how things <laughs> go over the next five or ten years. But currently, uh, you know, kingdom seems like this very uh, foreign concept in many respects. Uh, and when people think of it, that people think of of old men sitting on thrones, ruling mm. ruling mm. their kingdoms and charging taxes and and yep. uh, raising armies. And, and Over the top, boys. That's right. Um, and so I think it's very important and useful to actually unpack how Jesus was using that particular kind of language mm. and how even then in a time when that language was understood in a certain kind of way, he was subverting uh, That's right. the meaning yeah. of it and actually redefining yep. the concept yep. itself to mean something very, very different to what people would have uh, you know, assumed. 
And, and yeah, the way I love about the Gospels and the portrayal of Jesus in it is the kind of sometimes comical links Jesus would go to to undermine that narrative. You know, you know, Roman warlords and Caesars would you know come into the city on the back of a massive stallion, dragging prisoners behind them. Um, Jesus entered on a donkey, which is just one of the most comic, comical animals out there. The kind of um, yeah, the, the kind of um, undermining of that narrative of, you know, power over, you know, that, that by the sword, Rome will conquer. And Jesus, you know, turning away from the sword and, and riding in on the feeblest, dumbest looking animal he could find um, uh, as, a, as a representation of the kind of, the kind of, you know, glory that um, following Jesus would bring. I think it's, it's wonderful. I think he could have found more feeble animal. He could have come. Oh, look, a badger! A yeah. badger would have been great. <laughs> badger would have been great. But I don't know how many badgers were on hand at the time. Oh, okay, sure, fair point. All willing. See, donkeys are willing. That's the great thing about them. Are they? You know? Yeah. I don't know. I've never yeah. ridden a donkey, so I'll, you take, I'll oh, take your word for it. Quite an experience. Well, I know you're not. You're not the Messiah then. No, not yet. A very naughty boy. We'll see how this podcast goes. Exactly. If I can really crank the rankings, then exactly you never know. <laughs> More paid advertisements might help. Oh, that's right. Good Squarespace, something like that. Mm. As someone, so so you're now, so you you came through this journey where you were you were a leader within this Pentecostal kind of church. Then you went through this unraveling process, and then you went and made coffee. Very good yes. coffee, I can attest to that. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Now you find yourself back in the position of being a leader within a faith community. I know I got tricked. <laughs> and and knowing you, I know that you can be a pretty charismatic guy when you want to be. You know, you have a a certain. By that you mean I talk, I talk fast. Yeah, look, you 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 yeah. you're a quick talker, and mm. before you know it, you've agreed to do something that you didn't even understand. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. But you know, you are you are capable of being a compelling individual who can convince people of things, who can who can inspire people and encourage people and you know, without wanting to build you up too much here. Um you know, th- th- there's a there's a capability that you have to do that. Um how do you resist yourself the temptation or even just the habit or the mm. just the mm. accepted norms that would lead you to becoming that kind of guru figure, even within a small community, because this is not really about the size of a community as much as it is about the status and the way in which you function within that community. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do you resist that path? And are you intentional about this in certain kind of ways? What does that look like for you? There's kind of two layers to that. One is that I have just grown increasingly um, disturbed <laughs> by that kind of leader, um, and especially when I see it in myself, which, you know, full disclosure, I'm sure I don't always do. Um, but that, that kind of sense of not really deeply, um, having died a few few deaths in my lifetime, um, having failed a few times and having felt failed by others a few times has given me, um, yeah, at least some kind of immunity against the success narrative. Um, but secondly, with that, I think for our community, the way that we structure things is really important to us. Um, this is not by any reason, again, <laughs> here goes guruism, like the idea of asking one person about how not to be a guru as if I've got the answers. Tell us um, how Tell us how to do it, Shane. We'll do you whatever buy, you say. You can buy my book on how not to be a guru in 10 easy steps. <laughs> um, I think 
Yeah, I mean, so, and, and these aren't my ideas. These are things that we have come to as a community. Um, so, you know, you can blame someone else for this. But um, we, I'm a part of a collaborative leadership team, a collaborative leadership team. Uh, that means that we have a flat structure where there's two and about to be three of us who lead alongside each other um, in the role of curators of the community. Um, Basically, what that means is that we have to make decisions together. We have to learn to disagree well. None of us kind of gets a single final say. Um, and that brings a diversity of perspectives to the way that we leave, um, the way that we lead. Um, another big one for us is that we, we work part-time, so we try and have jobs outside of the church. And that's been really, really helpful. Um, to have a job where um, there's not the risk of you being somebody, is really, really helpful. It's a good reminder of your place in the world. It's a good perspective of what's going on outside of the church. It stops you. I, th- I think we're, a lot of pastors get trapped as they spend so much time within the church community, they genuinely begin to think it's the most important thing in the world. Um, and it's it's just not. It's an important thing. It's an important place of nourishment. But there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of places the kingdom of God's playing out that isn't inside our church um, and working outside of it reminds you of that um we one of the things we try and do as a community one of our practices is try and make space for other voices wherever possible um we start our series by spending a few weeks asking our community about what they think about things what experiences they have of this so say if we you know a couple last year we did a series on prayer and we would have spent four or five weeks asking people um yeah, what does prayer look like for them? Where are their struggles? Who's given up on prayer and why? What um, stories do they carry with them? How has their understanding of prayer changed over time? And we kind of come up with a big collective pot of stuff that we want to discuss and focus on and talk around. And look, this isn't kind of the death of the, the expert. I think that as pastors, we are in some ways employed to bring some kind of gifting or expertise, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, stuff like biblical interpretation and context and kind of being able to curate services and manage discussions and stuff. But I guess it's the sense that we don't have the final word on things, um, that we will bring something to the table, which is then kind of um, chewed over by a community. Um, and it's a space for people to push back and to disagree and to ask questions and to when we try and clarify things for them to tell us that we haven't understood them correctly which happens reasonably often um i'm great at giving a praises that is um completely wrong apparently but when you when people feel empowered to do that um the wisdom of the community begins to come out um and one of the benefits is one of the tragedies i think of guruism is that um in churches, you've got people who've spent 40, 50 years in church and just slowly they've lost the capacity to wrestle. Their, 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 their kind of um, theological brain has withered and withered and withered um, until they don't really know how to chew things over and think for themselves. I mean, I rem- remember sitting in conferences next to people, taking notes, writing down completely contradictory statements underneath one another and having no idea that they didn't actually sit together because – the person had said it, so it must be right. Um, and that's a tragedy because there is there's so much wisdom within a community. There's so much experience. I'm a massive believer in grounded theology and that if theology, if theology doesn't um, 
stand the test of real life, of stand the test of people's experiences, then it needs to be um, there needs to be wrestled with it. It needs to be um, challenged, um, and it helps me as a person who kind of has to um, prepare stuff to talk about from time to time because it trains you to carry those stories with you when you're thinking about things. Um, I call it, you know, empathetic theology, the sense of that you care, you, you, you think more and more about the lives of the people that you're um, speaking into because you carry their stories with you. Guruism in lots of ways teaches you to, because you hold the truth, your job is really just not to listen to other people, but for to wait for them to finish their sentence so that you can tell them how it is. Um, your job is not to dive into their pain if it conflicts with your story of what is supposed to be happening. And, you know, there, there are plenty of, there are plenty of sociopath pastors out there, but there are also plenty of people who, who genuinely want to help their community, but because their job is to provide all of the answers, they've just slowly learned not to listen. Um, not to understand, not to hear, not to expect that they might learn something off the people in their community. And I think that's a massive tragedy. So, yeah, we try and find lots of different ways of um, giving people a chance to push back, giving people a chance to ask questions, giving people a chance to um, approach the text with curiosity and wonder um, rather than closing it down to a single conclusion. Um, And this doesn't, you know, in a group of, in a largest group of people, of course, you can only do so much of this. People can only be so vulnerable. People slowly learn how to manage conflict together. But hopefully what it at least does is it provides space and empowers people to have a voice, um, to talk amongst themselves, to get in touch with us and push back if they need to, that there's an expectation on our community that they have something to contribute. Um, and as we grow in that, more and more of that stuff is coming out in this space, which is yeah, it's just been profoundly beautiful and really inspiring and challenging for me as a person. Like, I often just end up sitting back during discussion times and services just marvelling at the thing, the perspectives people bring that I could never bring because my life is not their life. Um, my view is not their view. I haven't seen the things that they've seen. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about that role of what it means to bring expertise and experience into a conversation without that becoming means to then dominate that conversation. Mm. Um, And I think that's something that even many, say, Christian leaders who have been through some kind of journey of trying to figure things out and maybe pull things apart and put them back together again uh, can very easily fall back into that place of, right, well, I've still got to, I've got to bring all of that expertise to this Mm. conversation. um, Mm. And, and I think that tension, that challenge to say, well, I might bring expertise and that matters and it's valued, but it's still one voice within this conversation. That's right. Uh, and that's, yeah. I think, a, yeah. A, uh, yeah. something you have to keep paying attention to. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's very easy to either fall into a place of, I'm the expert, therefore listen to me, or the other alternative is for communities to say, there are expertise doesn't matter and we all yeah. just think what we like. And just mm. make it up as we go along, and and I think that can have its own kind of problems downstream, and can be taken advantage of by by then people who come swooping in with with power and charisma. Absolutely, and look, I think that's one of you know, um, 
for those of us in the collaborative team, one of our jobs is to kind of protect the space, is to um, make space for a multiplicity of voices. Um, but what you sometimes get is that, you know, Christians, are t- Christians for the most part aren't great at conflict um, because we haven't been raised to have conflict. We essentially, we hold the truth or our pastor holds the truth or someone holds the truth and our job is to kind of bludgeon the others with the truth. Um and so because of that, we haven't really learned how to disagree and listen well at the same time. Our conflict often ends up, you know, our faith ends up becoming something that we either have to protect from outside of opinions, like it's kind of a fragile vase, or it's like a landmine that, you know, if someone conflicts with it and touches it, we kind of explode in rage that, um, that they would dare challenge us. And I like faith that's a bit more like a soccer ball, that it can be kicked around a bit. Um, that we can we can listen well. I am a cisgendered white straight European male. Um, that's the perspective that I bring, and that you know, there's a lot of worth to that. But it's certainly not the only voice. It's not the only story. It's not the only experience. Um, and when you bring other, particularly when you get to biblical texts, when you bring other perspectives from outside of that to the text, you read very very different things as a very different. Um, effect on you and i think it's really important to, to to name that and acknowledge that and make space for it and like i think you're acknowledging kind of earlier um, how quickly the temptation can come to even even in this space which is to say right now we've heard these wonderful things shane has said to us about uh guruism uh we can all, like Shane, have a growing, successful, healthy church community <laughs> that is flourishing and moving ahead without any of that guruism that other people do um, yeah. and very quickly turn it into the, the same kind of thing, right? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for sure. So we'll, uh, we'll try and avoid that by periodically saying just terrible and useless things. Just a blow. <laughs> Look, I think, you know, at least 30% of this has been terrible and useless, so you've got your content Actually, right that's not bad. 30% is not bad. That means 70% is not terrible that, or useless. That, that might have been my sales spin. Yeah, okay. You've taken an overly positive spin on it, but... <laughs> that's my job. That's my job. Well, yeah. thanks heaps for um, for having this conversation. I really appreciate it. Mm. And uh, my, my, my absolute pleasure. Okay, so that was Shane Meyer-Holt and I discussing gurus and the problem with charisma. As always, if you've got any questions, stories, feedback, reflections, experiences and so on you want to share, please get in touch at intheshift.com or through the social media world. Um, And I'll see you next time.